Welcome to the beginning of our Christmas series, and we're just going to simply call it Christmas Stories, because what we're going to do is we're going to go through the Bible, and we're going to pick some characters that had experiences with the Christmas story. Now, one of the cool things that we have that we take for granted, because, uh, you know, it's just common knowledge, is we have four accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible. Now, of course, the Bible's not like one full book. It's a, a collection of ancient manuscripts. And four of these manuscripts tells us the life of Jesus. We call them the gospel. They're similar, but they're not identical, you know, between the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The interesting thing is that, about, especially about Christmas, is two of the accounts of the life of Jesus don't say anything about his birth. Mark and John start with the ministry of John the Baptist, maybe 30 years after Jesus is born. But in Matthew and Luke, they both talk about the birth of Jesus. But Luke begins with the announcement of the angel to the, Jesus' cousin's mother, and then the angel goes and, and announces to teenage Mary that she's going to give birth to the Son of God. And Luke starts with that. But Matthew, Matthew's gospel is really unique because he doesn't start out with the story at all. He starts out with the genealogy. In fact, you can read the first few book, you know, the first few verses of the book of Matthew, and you can think, I don't want to read this because I don't know who any of these people are, and it's boring. Eventually, he gets to the Christmas story, but he starts out like this. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And then it goes on and on and on. And, and again, it's just it's not that very, it's not that interesting. It's kind of boring. And you might wonder, why would he do that? Well, a couple of reasons. One is, he was writing to a Jewish audience. He was trying to make the case that Jesus was the Son of God and that he was the Messiah. And the first question that a Jewish audience would ask before they read anything else is, wait a minute, was Jesus related to David? Because if he's not related to David, then we can't take him seriously because God promised that David would have a descendant on the throne. And there, you know, there's going to be a physical, literal Messiah. He has to be related to David. So Matthew, knowing that he's speaking to primarily Jew a Jewish audience, he decides, let's start off and let's answer the big question first. Who's Jesus ultimately related to? So he gives this genealogy. Then he does something really unusual, something a bit strange. Matthew goes out of his way to actually make us question some of the people that are in Jesus' genealogy. In fact, he adds to and even emphasizes people that he didn't even need to mention at all. For example, you know, like this should have been, based upon the culture, a male-dominated list because he's trying to connect Jesus the man to David the man through the lineage of men. But he put in the names of four women, and two of these women he really shouldn't have mentioned, and three of the four women, are they're not even Jewish. So he goes out of his way to say, oh, by the way, Jesus doesn't even have a pure bloodline. This Messiah, this, this man, this, and the story I'm about to tell you, he didn't even have pure Jewish blood. He was a mix, which didn't help Matthew with his case. But listen to how he explains it. Verse 3. He says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. So he introduces us to Tamar. Now, let me just tell you that there are verses in the story of Tamar that I won't even read out loud in church. It is a very dicey, you know, R-rated. It's way out there. And look, there was no reason to mention Tamar. You know, Matthew, just stick with the guys, stick with the storyline. 
But Matthew pauses and throws in this woman, Tamar, and everybody who knew Jewish history would have been like, whoa, 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 we remember the story of Tamar, why did you go there? And so he was the father of Hezron, Hezron was the father of Ram, Ram was the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Selmon, Selmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. He throws in another woman, Rahab. She's not Jewish either. And in fact, Rahab had a nickname, didn't she? If you're a church person, you know, it was Rahab the blank. Don't fill in the blank. And in fact, when you get to heaven, you might meet Rahab and you might look, oh, you're Rahab the lady in the Bible, you know? So anyway, she had this nickname. But there was no reason to even bring her up. And once again, the Jewish readers are like, whoa, the story of Rahab, I mean, why do we bring that up? Boaz, the father of Obed, whose, whose mother was Ruth. Now, Ruth, that's a good story. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible named Ruth. But Ruth wasn't Jewish. For a Jewish person, they knew that Ruth was not Jewish. In fact, the way that Ruth even got in the story is just kind of odd when you read the story of Ruth. It turns out great, but it's, it's kind of unique. And again, you would just say to Matthew, look, if you're trying to convince Jewish people that Jesus comes from a divine lineage and you're trying to connect Jesus to David, why all these off-ramps? Why all this sideways energy? Why all the distraction with these people? And so he says, Obed, the father of Jesse, and now it really gets crazy because Jesse is the father of King David. We finally arrived at where we need to be in genealogy. And if we just stop there, David was the father of Solomon. And watch how he writes this, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So it, it's like, okay, so Matthew, why don't you just say, you know, David, the father of Solomon, and Solomon was the son of, why don't you just stick with the men? He just keeps throwing these intrigues into here. He doesn't even t say Solomon's mom's name, but everybody knows Solomon, whose mother had been another man's wife. And now let me ask any of you church people, Bible scholars, who was Solomon's mother? She, or he, she was Bathsheba. And you don't even have to be a church person to know the story of David and Bathsheba or just to realize that, you know, that that's kind of dicey. Matthew, he doesn't say whose mother was Bathsheba. He just says whose mother was another man's wife. And again, I mean, the readers who know Old Testament history, they would be like, why did you have to bring that up? That was the worst thing that happened to David. We want to hear great things about King David. We don't want to think about his flaws and his failures. And the big, bad, bad, ugly scar, the, the ugly thing that David would have wished he could erase from his history was that encounter with Bathsheba. He had an affair with one of his best friend's wife, one of his general's wives. And he has this general set up to where he dies in a battle so that he can steal his wife. It's like the worst moment in King David's life. And Matthew, he's writing out this genealogy. And look, he hadn't even started the story yet. He's still in the genealogy. And it's like he's just going way out of his way to create all of this mystery and intrigue around these flawed people that are related to Jesus. So we gotta ask ourselves, why? Why all the distraction? Why not just stick with the men's names? And why stop to point out some of the issues that were in Jesus's genealogy? So why do you think he did that? Here's why I think he did that. 
Matthew had spent three years with Jesus, and Matthew had stood next to an empty tomb. Matthew, he saw Jesus die on the cross. Matthew heard Jesus teach, saw him raise from the dead. And Matthew knew that all of these shady characters with all of their baggage and all of their sin and all of their embarrassing stories, Matthew would know that they were the point of the whole story he's getting ready to tell. You see, Matthew knew that sin was the issue that Jesus came to actually address the issue of sin, that he didn't just come for sinners. This is important. Jesus came from sinners. And, and that was okay because that was the point. You see, Matthew knew firsthand that there really was a story about light coming into darkness. It really was a story about life coming into an environment that was characterized by death. It was a story of forgiveness in a world that only knew condemnation. And the other thing that I think that Matthew knew, and maybe this is what motivated him to add all of these seedy characters into the genealogy of Jesus. For Matthew, this was also his story. You see, because people like Rahab and, and Judah and Tamar and all of these incredibly flawed people and people like Bathsheba, who was Uriah, Uriah's wife, these were Matthew's kinds of people. These would have been the men and women that would have been his friends. The day that he would say was probably the most embarrassing day of his life was the day that he actually met Jesus for the first time. And, and it happens in Matthew chapter 9. I want to look at it with you. Verse 9, Matthew writing his own story. He says, Jesus went on from there and he saw a man named Matthew. He's talking about himself sitting at a tax collector's booth. I really think that when Matthew went to parties and, you know, and, they, and they would have the most embarrassing, embarrassing moment game, this is the story that Matthew would, would share. You know, let me tell you about the first time I met Jesus. Jesus is in a crowd and there's something going on and the crowd parts and Jesus walks out and there I am, eyeball to eyeball with Jesus. And guess what I'm doing? I'm sitting at the tax collector's booth to let, collecting taxes from Rome for Jews. This is why this is so embarrassing, is Rome sold the privilege to collect taxes from Jewish citizens. You could go to Rome and buy the opportunity to go to Palestine or Judea and collect taxes. And it worked like this. You were given the, the responsibility to collect a certain number of taxes, and you could add on a surcharge to those taxes, which meant that tax collectors were extremely wealthy because they would overtax people and got to keep the margin as long as they made Rome happy by delivering taxes. And in this system, there were a lot of taxes, income taxes, pool taxes, bridge taxes, gate taxes, taxes on fruit, on meat, on, on ports. There was a tax everywhere you went. And any time that Rome needed more money, they would just raise the taxes and all the areas of the world where they controlled. So they would sell this opportunity to raise taxes for five years. You bought a five-year privilege. Well, the problem was this. If you were a Roman citizen and you go to Judea or Palestine to raise taxes, how popular are you? Like, not at all. You don't have any friends because nobody likes the tax collector. And so the Romans, they get smart. And they recruited Jewish people to raise taxes from the Jewish people. Now, this was probably the worst thing that you could do as a Jew because this was betraying your nation, betraying your God. You were a total traitor and an outcast. So any Jewish man that bought the opportunity to collect taxes from the Jews, 
They were considering the they were the considered the lower of the lowest. And uh, there were two categories. You, you find this in scripture all the time: this ca- the tax ca- collectors and the sinners, tax collectors and the sinners, because they were so bad and cl- considered to be so low on the totem pole that they weren't even they weren't even lumped in with sinners. They had their own category: the tax gatherers and the sinners. So everybody kind of fell into the category of sinners, but then there were the tax gatherers. They had a category all to their own. And that's who Matthew was when Jesus found him. He was an embarrassment to his family. I'm sure he was ostracized from all religious life, not allowed in the synagogue. His only friends would have been other tax gatherers and sinners. And there he sits at the tax gathering booth. When Jesus walks up, I mean, the picture of righteousness, holiness personified, and he makes eye contact with Matthew. And Matthew is sitting there collecting taxes from other Jewish people. I'm telling you, there is no telling what went through his mind or what washed over him as he saw for the first time the very Son of God walking in his direction as he was raising taxes. Followed by Jesus' disciples who hated, like every Jew, tax collectors. And I'm sure as they approached Matthew and you know, maybe they had to pay a toll or a poll tax because they're right there in the port city. And as they approach, they know that Peter, Andrew, James, John, all the disciples, that they're already figuring out what they might say to this evil tax collector as they pass him. I mean, do they spit on him? Do they sneer? Do they whisper to each other? Do they just glare at him? Because the tax gatherers were a class just below all the other sinners in that region of the world. Middle of verse nine, Jesus says this, watch this. He says, follow me. And I'm sure the guys were like, you gotta be kidding me. You want this guy to come with us. But apparently, Matthew had turned over his responsibilities for that day for, to the people helping him, and he got up, and he follows Jesus. And guess where they go? Jesus, Jesus, where are we going? He says, well, I thought we'd go to your house. I'm sure Peter's like, oh, there is no way I'm going into a tax collector's house. I mean, even just talking to a tax collector is embarrassing enough. And come on, Jesus, let's step back. People are already thinking we're freaks. If we start hanging out with tax collectors, it's over for us. I don't know what kind of movement you're trying to create, but this is not helping us, Jesus. And surely, as Matthew writes his own story, he must have smiled, remembering what Peter and the other disciples had to have thought about him. And so Jesus says, no, I want you to go with us. And why don't you invite some of your friends? We're coming to your house. We'll all have a meal together. I'm sure the disciples were like, you, we're going to go to his house. There's going to be other tax collectors. Well, of course, who are Matthew's friends? There are other tax collectors and sinners. Those are the only people that would hang out with him. And so they throw a great party. They had lots of money. They just didn't have any friends outside of themselves. So then it says, while Jesus was at, the, at Matthew's house, a lot of the uh, tax collectors came with, the, with them. And verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so all the religious people are there. They don't dare go in or touch the property. They wouldn't be able to go into the temple because, you know, tax collectors and, and sinners had special kind of cooties that floated in the air. Man, so, I mean, honestly, you couldn't get too close in that, in that religion. So probably they ask one of Jesus' disciples, you know, come on out here. So maybe James or somebody comes out there and they say, hey, look, we don't understand your rabbi, your teacher. 
I mean, on one hand, he talks about the righteousness of God and the goodness of God, and he seems to want to uphold the law, but now, now he's in there getting tax gatherer cooties. You know, it's like we don't understand what's going on here. I mean, he's a mystery to us. He's a paradox. It's a contradiction. What is going on? And so apparently Jesus overhears or gets the message that there are some, some righteous people out there trying to figure Jesus out. Matthew, is, he's just writing all this down. Jesus comes out or maybe sends a message to them. And here's what he says in verse 12. He says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Verse 13, but go and he says, I want you to go and I want you to learn what this means. And then he quotes from an Old Testament story that's an awesome story that I won't be able to tell you today. But these religious people, they would know exactly the context of this statement. So he quotes from the Old Testament and he says, I, speaking of God, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Then he speaks for himself and he says this, For I, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. And you know, that wouldn't have been offensive to Matthew and his friends because they knew that they were sinners. And you see, as Matthew considered and thought through his own story, he would realize that the story that he was about to tell is the story of Jesus that would become a gospel, the gospel of Matthew. He knew that to include sinners in the genealogy, it wasn't a mistake. It was actually the whole point because he had seen Jesus live out this mission, even on behalf of himself, that Jesus wasn't there to call, call the righteous, but to call sinners. That he didn't come for those that didn't need a physician, he came for the sick. And Matthew maybe understood more than any of the other gospel writers that the story of Jesus and the story of specifically of Christmas is a story of God drawing near to those who had drawn away. And God drawing near to those who had been drawn away. About God leaning in toward those that had leaned away from God. About God leaning in toward those who, because of the things that they had no control over, maybe family situations or lack of knowledge or whatever it might have been, but they found themselves leaning away from God. Now, Matthew understood that he needed to, that he needed to highlight the problems in the genealogy because not only were those people but they actually reflected why Jesus came in the first place. And at the end of three years with Jesus, this is what Matthew discovered, that when Jesus came, he changed the rules and the terms of what it meant to approach God. Because the reason that Matthew had drawn away from God and the reason that so many of his friends had drawn away from God is because the thinking then is much like the thinking now. Then in order to approach God, I have to approach God based upon the platform of what I have done or have not done. That the only reason that God will take me seriously is because I have done good things and I've done my best to avoid bad things. And Matthew would know that if that was the platform by which he could approach God, that he had absolutely no chance to approach God and that he would be pushed out of religious life and connection with God forever. What Matthew discovered after watching Jesus for three years, standing by the cross, standing by the empty tomb, is that the rules, they had all changed. And from now on, he, an ex-tax collector, a sinner, a man who had failed in every way and broken every law, 
actually had the opportunity to approach God, not based upon the basis of what he did, but based upon what Jesus did for him. That the rules had changed. And that the sinners in the genealogy, they were the point to the whole story. Because God had not come for those who felt like they had a right standing because of their own righteousness. God had come for those that knew that they needed a different standard altogether. Not for those that would do well, but for those who had done so poorly that they needed a gift, the gift of righteousness. The gift based upon what God through Christ had done on our behalf. That the message in the story that he was about to tell It was a story of God drawing near to those who had drawn away, that God had drawn near to those who had been drawn away. So here's what we're going to do. For the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some people's stories, some other people's stories. We're going to look through some different people's eyes, you know, like some of them you know about, but there may be some details of some of these other stories that we've missed. Why in the world would, at Christmas time, would we focus on these things? It's because when the angel announced the birth of Jesus, he announced Jesus as, watch this, the Savior of the world. The Savior from what? Savior from sin. And that's the point of Christmas, is that God sent a Savior. And we each have our own story. We each have our own history. And the genealogy is the perfect launch for, for Matthew to launch the Christmas story because it highlights the world's need for a Savior. Your need, my need. And so if you're still a person who approaches God in your mind or in your, in your prayers or in your worldview or in your perspective, if you're still approaching God in any way based upon what you have done or not done, good or bad, This is my agenda for you for the next few weeks is that you would absolutely abandon this totally and completely because no matter how good you are, how consistent you've been in attending church or giving or whatever it is that you think makes you you being able to approach God, that is not good enough. And my agenda for us all is that we would actually abandon this approach to God. And at the same time, if you're a person that says, look, my understanding is if I'm going to have a relationship with God and if I'm going to approach God, then I come on the, and I come on the basis of what I've done or haven't done. And if he's proud of me or not proud of me based upon what I have done, you know, Micah, I got to tell you, there's been a lot of, I haven't done, I haven't measured up. You know, there's a lot of inconsistency in my life. And some of you that struggle with this most, you've been Christians the longest, Because it's easy for those of us that have been Christians for a long time to forget where the source of our right standing with God is. Because we can we can get things to the point to where no, you know, we don't curse anymore, and you know, we're not getting drunk and we're not cheating on our spouses, and we can get to a point that we have most things in check. And look then look at people that don't have things in check and actually judge them and forget that that's exactly who we are without Christ. And see, the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus, is a story of sin being taken away once and for all for everybody. Those that think that they are righteous and those that know that they're not. And my agenda for us, just within these few weeks, is that all of us would come to a place where we can, with a clear conscience, say, God, in my prayers, in my thinking, in my perspective, in my worldview, I am not coming to you based upon anything that I've done 
or have not done. I'm coming to you purely 100% based upon the fact that through Jesus, you have done something for me. That you, Jesus, that you have the authority from God to actually declare a sinner forgiven. I accept that. And when I pray and when I think about you, I am not going to run my thoughts about you through the filter of my personal righteousness or unrighteousness. Because I believe that Jesus, when you came into this world, you didn't come to be a helper. You didn't come to be a leg up. You didn't come to be a second chance. You came to be exactly what Matthew and Luke presented you to be the actual savior, the forgiver, the gift of righteousness to the, to the whole world. You see, this is a more difficult transfer than you might think, this mindset transfer. It's more difficult than at first it might seem. And the longer that you have been a Christian, sometimes the more difficult it, that it is to actually abandon this idea that you are good enough, that you've behaved well enough. Perhaps this is why it wasn't the tax collectors or the sinners or even the Romans that crucified Jesus. It was actually the men and women that believed somehow that they had an approach to God that could be justified based upon their behavior, their goodness. It was a group, it was the group that never understood this particular verse. I have not come to call the righteous, the self-righteous, but I have called, I have come to call sinners. I haven't come to call those that think that they have earned their way. I have come for those that recognize and listen, my, my hand is up as one of these people as well, that people that would recognize that Jesus has come for those that recognize that no amount of good human works will ever justify anybody before God. That the, the very ability to approach God relationally is actually a gift, and it has absolutely nothing to do with personal acts of righteousness. And so, as Matthew wrote his genealogy, how could he resist? I'm sure, how could he resist that temptation to include the failures? Because it was the failures in the sinners that were the point of the whole story of Christmas. So this is my prayer for, for us, for you, for me, that in these next few weeks that we, we just wrestle this to the ground and at the end as we approach Christmas itself, that we would be a group of people that had been liberated from a false sense of righteousness and a hopeless sense of unrighteousness. And that we would be a group of people that every day of our lives and the way that we live out our faith, that we would live it in such a way that would say, I can approach my Father in heaven, not through the filter of what I've done or haven't done, but because of what God through Christ has done for me. You see that, that's the story of Christmas. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for just for allowing us to call you Father. And, and Heavenly Father, just as we, you know, never, um, as we never filter our love through our own children, through the, through the grid of how well they do, so you look at us in the same way. God, help us to see this. Bring us there emotionally. Let us feel this. And for the, for the person that's here that's been a Christian forever and they are so tied up just in the ideas of legalism, I just thank you that you would set them free 
and also for the man or the woman that says, I can't even believe that I'm watching church because of what I've done this weekend or what I've done with my family or I've done you know, with my money. I pray that for that person that you would set them free as well. And that we, arm in arm, the, the righteous and the unrighteous, that we would all come to the feet of Jesus' cross and realize that we are all unrighteous before God without the love and the forgiveness of Jesus. And so for everybody that has been Christmas for a long time and those that are not Christians yet, that we would understand that it is your grace and your mercy that enables us to approach you. Thank you for that gift, for that freeing truth. I pray that it would come alive in each of our hearts as we experience this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.